Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Penny Streeter OBE has been described as one of the most influential entrepreneurs of our time. Having left school with no qualifications, she ended up living on benefits with three children in emergency accommodation before founding the healthcare recruitment business that made her fortune. She's also the owner of three wine estates, one in South Africa called Benguela Cove and two in the UK. Hers is quite a story. Hello, Penny. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and I think I'm going to be very jealous here because you're at Benguela Cove in South Africa, aren't you? I certainly am. And it's a lovely, hot, sunny day. A little bit of breeze, but beautiful. I don't want to know because it's a beautiful <laughs> bit of the world, isn't it? I mean, that bit of the coastline is just lovely. It is absolutely magnificent. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a truly special place. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to talk about that quite a bit, about the vineyard and about how you came to be there. But I just want to start with, I always do, with a little bit of background, because you were born in Rhodesia, as it was then. Um, I mean, do you remember your parents drinking wine when you were a kid? Were there any vineyards in, 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 in Rhodesia? I mean, I think there are some in, in what is now Zimbabwe, aren't there? I think there are some now, but certainly no, no vineyards back in Rhodesia in the day. Lots of um, tobacco farms and oranges and stuff like that. But And no, do I really, did they drink wine? I think, no, I can't remember them drinking wine. Gin and tonic, I think, was their staple. <laughs> so that was a bit more of a kind of expat drink, was it, in those exactly, days, gin and tonic? Exactly, Oh, OK. And then, you know, you, you, you kind of shuttled back, you went to England and then you came back to South Africa, didn't you, at one point? And you were actually at school there for part of your teens, weren't you? Yeah, um, that's correct. Um, after, after um, obviously, the Rhodesian War, my, fa- my, my parents are originally British, so they, we went back to the UK and, um, when I was 12 years old, and they divorced, and my father came out to South Africa. He was, he's a Southern Africa writer, and I followed on quite promptly. I, went to, I decided that I preferred to be in South Africa, and I sort of promptly went to school there. So for a couple of years, I was at Alberton High in Johannesburg. So it's kind of in your blood, is it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously born born in Southern Africa. I think once you're in Southern Africa, you always sort of tend to come back to back here. You know, yeah. some, it's a place I love. But but after you left school, you went back to England, didn't you? That's right. So again, doing these geographicals, I went back to England. I became one of um, Thatcher's kids. I went on white ear schemes and so forth. And um that's uh, basically I set up my first business in the UK when I was 19. And so, is it true that you left school without any qualifications? You must have had some qualifications, didn't you? Absolutely none, to my dad's horror. Um, this was the thing between South Africa and England. I, like, I left school when I was 16. Um, you don't matriculate in South Africa you're 18. And he said, you know, you're going to be completely unemployable. This is a joke. And I said, well, I'm going. And I went back to England. So, um a bit of a rebel. Well, oh, you've always been a bit of a rebel, have you? Yes, always. Always <laughs> done the wrong, always never done what I'm told to do. Well, yeah, but, but you probably ended up doing the right thing for the wrong reason, maybe. I don't know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Just by fluke, maybe. Yeah, so, I mean, you did these various careers, you know, we'll come on to some of them in a minute, but insurance clerk, 
beauty therapist. And then I read the story that you just walked into a recruitment office and said, you need to employ me. Is that how it happened? <laughs> I think I walked in there and I said, look, I need a job. And the guy said to me, he's a great friend of mine. I said, get around the other side of the desk. We're desperate for staff and you can work here. And that was it. So, so that was my entrance into recruitment. Complete chance that you just happened to work into that particular office. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and where was the office? <laughs> it was in Wallington and Surrey, of all places. So, yeah. Um, and I, my business head office is still very close to there. It's in Sutton, Surrey today. So, yeah, I stayed around the local area. So you were just living nearby, were you? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what happened with the beauty therapist bit? <laughs> Again, I suppose being that terrible kid of 16 who left school, I then sort of, like I said, I went on YTS schemes and then I decided, actually, I fancy being a beautician. And again, my dad rolled his eyes. I became a beautician and um, was found I was useless at it. I actually waxed people's eyebrows off and stuff like that. So I quickly had to leave that job. <laughs> Did any of them sue or not? <laughs> Luckily, there wasn't that mentality in those days. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you've founded this amazing home in recruitment. I mean, what, why do you think you're so good at, at, at that? I mean, is, I mean, you're obviously a people person. I mean, you're very friendly. You're open. People warm to you immediately. Is that part of the secret, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, I, I credit my success going back to my Rhodesian upbringing. Um, that Southern, I always, I think from... You know, the moment my parents were used to eat out and drink out a lot. And the service levels were really fantastic. We had that great colonial life. And when I came over to the UK, I think I brought that service ethic. I was in search of this high, high level of service. So when I went into recruitment, I wanted to deliver a service that was exceptional. Mm. I was the first 24-7 recruitment agency in healthcare. And I wanted to deliver what my customers needed each and every time, yeah. 100%. So yeah. I think that's in me and it's still in me now. I mean, you kind of had two goes at it, didn't you? I mean, the first one business you set up at the wrong time, um, probably not your fault. It was just at a downturn in the market. was called Elite Personnel. I love the, you know, <laughs> I, like, I like the ambition of that. And, you know, and it started pretty well, didn't it? And then it, it fell into debt and folded. I mean, what, what happened? Was it just you were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we overinvested in the business. We set it up and, um, thought, you know, we thought we were going to be absolutely incredible. When I say we, it was myself and my mum. And the 80s sort of crash came and we went from having no candidates to millions of people searching for work. And obviously, boom, we went up in a puff of smoke. So it was a, it was a horrible time. You know, it was bad to sort of go. We had our cars repossessed and everything else. So it was a nasty time. But it was true that you were hiding the cars around the corner, wasn't it? So they couldn't find them. <laughs> yes, my son was quite small at the time, and the, I got a phone call, and this guy said to me, uh, "Yeah, have you got a such and such car?" And I said, um, "Yeah." And then I put the phone down. And I thought, "Oh my goodness, it's it's bailiffs are coming to collect it." And I said to my son, "Quick, we must run!" And I, "Mummy's going to hide the car around the corner," which is what I did. And, and but they still <laughs> found it, right? Yeah, they they know everyone does that. Obviously, they watch you and see you hide your car. <laughs> and you also spent. I, mean, I read this thing where you said you spent too much on furniture. It's a kind of you know, it's 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 a beginner's mistake where you think, okay, I'm going to kit out this amazing office, and presumably it wasn't IKEA, was it? You'd bought some posh furniture, and that yeah. went as well. Yeah, we took loans. We kitted out the office with great furniture, and boom, no, so, you know, that was my big learning from that um, that first time round is. 
that actually you just need a cardboard box to sit on, nothing more. So what did you learn from that experience? I mean, it must have been pretty brutal, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you had a £40,000 bank loan. Um, I mean, you did, you weren't declared bankrupt, but but the business went under, didn't it? Exactly. It went under and, you know, my mum owed her mother a lot of money. So it was a bad time. I, You know, I learned that you didn't need, I actually didn't need any money. You actually didn't need any furniture. You need nothing. So, yeah. you know, you just, you know, for us in those days, we just needed the ability to sell on the telephone and that was it. Yeah, and you could be anywhere, frankly, couldn't you? Exactly, exactly. Well, now you can be anywhere. Yeah, I mean, all you do is just put a virtual background behind you and you could yeah. you could pretend you're in Cape Town, right? <laughs> and that's exactly what we do. <laughs> do you? The, the, yeah. What, there's a shot of Cape Table Mountain behind you? <laughs> no, I mean, our UK business, part of our back office and compliance is run from Cape Town now, so... Yeah. I mean, so after the business folded, you kind of went back to a place that's special to you, which is South Africa. You went with your first husband, two kids. I think your sister was living there, wasn't she? And you, you didn't you work in her restaurant? Yeah, that's right. My sister Sally had a restaurant called Stars Cabaret Restaurant, which was in Joburg, right in the sort of, um, I suppose it was what, what time of year was it? 1990, So quite a hairy time to be in Joburg. A um, lot of armed robberies and restaurants and stuff like that. So, you know, I remember driving back at night. You couldn't stop at lights. It was a really scary, scary so, so time. And she, when yeah, was that? What year? About 1990, Okay, so it was before democracy came back. I mean, that was a rough time, exactly. wasn't it? It was a terrible time. Um, you know, she was held up in her restaurant at gunpoint three or four God. times. So, yeah, really bad. Um, it, I went out there to help her and ultimately I... When I was, I was pregnant with my, I got pregnant again and came back to the UK in early, early 94, just before the change. Yeah. And um, yeah, got divorced and had nothing, came back to England with pretty much nothing. My daughter got meningitis and oh, I decided I couldn't stay in South Africa given the sort of level of violence. Uh, okay, that, that, that put you off. I mean, the next mm. bit of your life is was unbelievably tough. I mean, reading about it, it almost makes you want to cry. You know, you went back to the UK, got divorced, had your third child. You ended up living in emergency accommodation on benefits for two years. I mean, how did you come through something like that? Where, where did you find the inner strength? Was it, the, was it the Rhodesian bit again that got you through it? Or is it just your personality? I think it was the Rhodesian bit again, because, you know, like I said, I had such a great childhood myself and I didn't, I looked at my three kids and I thought, you know, these kids are going to have absolutely nothing. You know, you're going to have this absolute horror story. They're all going to be, you know, I don't know. Left. And I just wanted to do something to pull ourselves out of there. And that's, that's what I, you know, I just had that grit to restart my business again. So what happened for the two years when you were living on benefits, really? I mean, were you just scraping by? I was doing children's discos, so right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was how you earned a living. So, exactly. I mean, do children children like discos? <laughs> they do, they do. So yeah, we would do discos, um, you know, every single weekend. I'd load up my old banger of a car, and off I'd go, and I'd do two or three discos on a Saturday and Sunday. Um, yeah, and that was how you made ends meet, was it? Exactly, exactly. It was the only way. But then in the back of your mind, recruitment was still there, was it? You were thinking, I'm going to have another go at it? Absolutely. My mum said, you know, there's no way, you know, God, we've got no money. People said, don't touch it. You're obviously rubbish at business. Um, but a friend of mine who I went to school with in Johannesburg, um, her husband lent me a corner of his office. He had a car parts business. And he lent me a corner of his office rent-free. And that was it. I was away. Um 
So that was your we phone. Would... That was your cardboard box and a phone, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the business was called Ambition 24, and you set it up with your mum, Marion, 96, and you two are still the only two shareholders, I think, aren't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's 100% owned by us. Yeah. And why has that succeeded so handsomely where elite personnel failed? Was it <laughs> was it the 24-7 thing, do you think, that made the big difference? I think so. Um, at the time we set up our healthcare business, we the um, recruitment agencies used to um, open their door at nine, close their door at five, and literally we became the first 24-7 agency, um, literally operating since 1996 around the clock, and we haven't closed once since. So, you know, it's that level of service. Now all of the healthcare business agencies are 24-7, but we were the sort of trailblazers. So there's literally someone on the end of the phone line, is there, at three o'clock in the morning? Exactly. And in the early days, that was me. So so what did you do? Sleep by the cardboard box? Exactly. Uh, well, I, I would divert it to my phone and obviously I would answer the phone to a hospital in the middle of the night and have have a chat with them and do whatever was needed. Yeah. But it wasn't healthcare to start with, wasn't it? W- w- didn't you start off doing more financial stuff? Yeah, yeah, it was financial services with the bank insurers and then it moved on to nurses nurses yeah. and care workers yeah i mean you've said it's healthcare recruitment i just wonder how, how does it work do people contact you do you contact them do you have people on your books i mean I, i'm just fascinated by how the whole thing functions um i think well we have around fifteen thousand nurses and carers working for us at any one point at the moment but what happens is that a hospital nhs trust a private hospital care home will call us um, we'll go onto our database to a pre-screened nurse, doctor or care worker that works that's registered with us and we will ma- do that match and send the person off. But our our business works on very much last minute. So um, none, of, none of these places want excess labour around. They only want to buy in staff as they need them. So very much just in time labour. So Chelsea and Westminster would call us. We require a nurse tonight. We'd go on the database, fill it, and that's how it would work. The nurse would go. And then you just contact this person and say, fancy working for 12 hours doing a shift at the Chelsea and yeah. Westminster Hospital. We, we would match the skills. Obviously, um, it's a lot more complex than that. To clear with us as a candidate takes around six months. So there's oh, okay. a huge amount of background checks and um, credential checks that have to go on. So that's a key bit of business that you you vet the people, so you know you're not yeah. going to get somebody who's who's a 100%. nutcase. Yeah, no, the UK market's very, very, very compliance driven, very strict. Yeah, and I mean the, the you know great idea and the twenty four seven as you said was brilliant as well and innovation. But then didn't people start copying you and sort of stealing your ideas and stealing <laughs> your data and all that stuff? Yeah, as with all things. So um, yes, I mean. We had a lot of theft from staff stealing data, mm. um, selling data to competitors, mm. units setting up in opposition against us with, with stolen data. Mm. So it was a pretty torrid time. Um, yeah. And, you know, we tried taking them to court. We tried everything we could, but it was quite difficult to stop. Um, at that time, the courts didn't really protect the intellectual property very, very well yeah. in the UK. Yeah. Because your data is your was your database, really, exactly. of, of nurses and doctors, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and and who pays you? Do the doctors and nurses pay you or or, or, or the people or the hospitals and, and the trust the, pay the you? The clients, the clients, the nursing homes, hospitals, etc. Okay, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean in 2004 you moved the whole business to South Africa, didn't you? Which was another kind of <laughs> another brave idea. I mean what made you do that? 
I didn't move the whole business. I moved ah. the, basically, we talked about the credential checks and how it takes six months or so to do that. So yeah. very much that, that element of the business, the compliance side, we moved to Cape Town and part of our databasing and development of, of our developers as well, all yeah. based in South Africa. And the reason for that was simply, as we've said, to protect the business because I felt that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have a business left. So it was easier to protect the business in South Africa, the new South Africa by then, than it was in the UK? Absolutely, because I was able to um, have large teams of developers who I've still got who were able to work on the protection of that. And obviously that immediate separation of those staff that are doing those background checks from the UK that meant that they weren't in a position to lift that data and take it to competitors. Ah, They subsequently have found other ways of doing it. So, you know... (laughs) (laughs) People are resourceful, aren't they? Yeah, you're never 100% protected. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, South Africa, in a way, is you know, it's it's got this this pull on you, hasn't it? So you were there as a kid, you know, you went back with this sister at a very difficult time uh, in South Africa, and now you live there most of the year, don't you? What what is it you like about South Africa and South Africans? Oh. I think everything, everything. About, I mean, South Africa itself is, I think, one of the best places to live in the world. I mean, you know, it's got absolutely everything. It ticks every single box in terms of lifestyle, you know, restaurants, whatever you want is here. Um, yes, it's got its share of problems, but I think so is everywhere in the world. So, you know, those are just a case, case of managing it. And it certainly bears no resemblance to the South Africa I lived in pre-94. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, it's a very different place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, could you have achieved what you've achieved back in the UK or do you think the business wouldn't have developed as it's developed? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I did achieve it in the UK. The UK, mm. you know, was where it still is and mm. one of my main, main markets. Mm. So, you know, the UK is a great place to do business. All mm. The only issue I had with the UK was my individual employees stealing from me. So that was oh, the only look, problem. Yeah. In, in, yeah, interesting. Well, not interesting, sad in a way. Mm, think. Yeah, terrible. Yeah. T- tell us a little bit. You're sitting now at Benguela Cove uh, and you bought this place 2013. <laughs> as far as I know, you hadn't had, I mean, you're probably obviously a wine drinker, but what made you buy a wine estate in 2013? <laughs> were, you looking, were you looking to lose money, presumably? Was it a tax loss? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, what brought me to Benguela um, was my husband actually loves, Nick loves boating and he's, he used to make us drive around at the weekends with his boat behind the car looking for somewhere to launch his boat. And he found Benguela Cove in a boating magazine. And we at the time we lived in Somerset West, which is not very far. Mm-hmm. And we came here and basically we you know, beautiful lagoon. As you drive in, it's got beautiful lagoon, vineyards to the left, homes here as well. And we we met with an agent here who sort of said to us, oh, you know, would you like to buy a house? And we decided to purchase a holiday home. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's what we did. And on the day that the property transferred, um, unfortunately, the developer who owned Benguela Cove at the time um, passed away. And we were, we were sort of, we had just bought his house. We were here. And what proceeded over the next couple of years was that um, his widow, who happened to be a nurse, was trying to run this business. And we could see that what Benguela was going to end up sort of carved up and nothing, you know, probably sold off in lots to various developers. And we decided to step in and purchase the whole estate from her. Yeah. Um, so that was in 2013. Mm-hmm. Now, 
at the time I was aware there were some vineyards and obviously we had some wines from the estate that we'd drink in and so forth. But I had no understanding of the scale of what I was purchasing uh, or what I was purchasing. I actually thought we had a few vines and it was only when I sat down with a few of the, you know, after I purchased it, our viticultural manager, Yaku, who's been here all the time. Um, I think it was Kevin Grant from Ataraxia. Um, Paul Wallace was working on the vineyards here. And I think I sat with them and we had a glass of wine and I said, you know, well, what do you think of this place? You know, what do I do with these vines? And they said, Penny, this is a massive undertaking. You've got, you know, 70 hectares of vines here. This is, they said, it's absolutely huge. It's not a little vineyard. Now, what are you going to do with it? What have you thought about it? And I thought, oh, my goodness. (laughs) It was a nightmare. There was no winery here. the, The grapes were being sold off all the time. And their advice to me was, quite frankly, carry on doing that. Just take the grapes and sell them. Yeah. And that's an easy life because as soon as you put it in the bottle, you're going to end up with garages full of mm. bottles of wine that you've now got to sell. They said, just don't do it. Just, you know, get someone to make a little bit for you for the estate. And and I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make all the wine. And they all sort of looked at me as if I was a lunatic. So um, you thought it was a property business. <laughs> and this turned out to have 70 hectares of vineyards, which is a lot of vineyard, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And not only that, built into every property owner's um, constitution was an obligation that we had to build a winery, a uh, 450-ton winery, tasting rooms, restaurants, commercial facilities. It had everything that we were required to build. Um, So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and these owners were beginning to sue the previous developer for that as well. So, you know, these these were very current decisions that had to be made. Yeah. But um, it was at that point because a lot of our grapes at that time were being sold to KWV, mm. and there was the link with Johan Faree. So uh. I met Johan, and Johan and I sat down, and, yeah, it all came together. I mean, Johan told me the potential of the property, what he saw. And, you know, to me, Johan's one of the top guys there is in South Africa. And I needed him by my side. And that's where we've been right from the beginning. We built the winery and, yeah, So he moved there in 2013, did he, from the KWV? He he moved in 2016. And and why why do you think you, I mean, you've got a very good relationship, haven't you? Why do you think you guys work so well together? I think because I don't interfere with him and tell him what to do too much, (laughs) which might seem the reverse of someone like me. But actually, um, I absolutely trust his his decisions and we work really well. I mean, he keeps me very, very well informed and he knows he's he he has a love of this property. Mm. And he not, and I mean every single step of the way, the the quality of grapes and the mm. quality of wines that are coming out of the property are you know are coming out exactly as he's predicted. So yeah. So, so, so you kind of became a winery owner by accident. You thought you were buying this property, <laughs> and then you suddenly find shit. I've got seventy hectares of vineyards. Yes, I mean it, it wasn't something you'd always wanted to do. Was it? You hadn't thought, no. hey, I quite fancy having a wine estate one day. No, not at all, not at all. I mean, Nick had, Nick had said to me how sport I'd got living in the winelands because he said we used, when we went home to England, he'd buy his normal cheap plonk from, from the 
you know, from the off-licence. And he said, I'd got to the point where I spat it out because it was so bad. He said, I'd already been spoilt by the good South African wines. So, <laughs> but that was our limit, you see. So, yeah, to end up with, with a wine business like this was, I think, really refreshing after being in recruitment was great because recruitment's a cutthroat, nasty business, whereas the wine business is an amazing, friendly business. Uh, that's interesting. I was going to ask mm. you whether how you'd compare the two. I mean, wine. You're right. Wine is wine can be competitive, mm. but it's, it's it's well occasionally it's nasty. But but I don't think it's that nasty. In South Africa, people work pretty well together, don't they? You were telling they about all the people who are giving you advice. You know, mm. and, and presumably they weren't even on staff, were they? No, no, not at all. I mean, they were just. I think people are pleased, are very keen to help, and I find that you know I was a bit on guard because you think, oh, what are you after? But yeah, I've not found that at all. Yeah. And you make quite a big range of wines, don't you? I mean, how many wines do you make at Bungala Cove? Oh, now you've got me on the spot. I think it's about seven or eight prim- yeah. prime. You know, we obviously we've got to have our state range. Yeah. Um, and then obviously our lighthouse range as well. But our focus is on our estate range. And, you know, obviously being in the area that we are in the cool climates, mm. you know, the things like Pinot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, mm. and our bubblies are, mm. you know, amazing. And you've got Bordeaux varieties as well, haven't you? You know, Cabernet yes. and, and, and and Merlot, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not Merlot. So ah. Cabernet, um, Shiraz, Syrah. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think. For you know, obviously where we're where we're located, um, we're one of the few wineries that actually has estate-grown fruit. All of the fruit in our wines is from the estate, and yeah. it is all you know processed in our winery. So I think that's quite rare. And yeah. people keep saying, you know, where do you, where you buy your fruit from? Yeah. So you know, you know, it's, it's all rarity. estate. Yeah, just, just tell us tell us a bit where you are for for people who don't know the Cape. You're, you, I mean, you're on water, but whereabouts are you exactly? I mean, how close are you to Cape Town? We're about one hour from Cape Town. Literally, if you drive, if you drive up the, if you come out of Cape Town Airport, you drive on the N2 and stay, stay driving until the Hamana sign. You go over Solaris and through the Algon Valley Crabo area. Yeah. Um, we're, we're literally, you see the sign for Hamanas and it, literally we're in the whale, whale watching capital of South Africa. Yeah. Um, so good, good tourism area, yeah? Oh, amazing. Um, a beautiful area, great tourism area, and, you know, uh, and well-known for really good wines as well. So yeah. And fishing, presumably? <laughs> yes, good fishing too. <laughs> I mean, I, I gave Benguela Cove my Cellador of the Year Award uh, in my 2020. 22 sorry south africa report and now i know you're very hands-on and you even call yourself a bit of a control freak (laughs) so i just wonder how you go about creating a destination winery you're not a wine person you know you've obviously a very good businesswoman uh you've you're an entrepreneur but how do you train your staff how did you go about creating this sort of vision of a place you wanted it to be i think it comes back to the same thing it comes back to that service ethic you know it's the same thing people are coming to us because they want an experience they want to feel welcome they want to relax they want mm. what i want when i go somewhere mm. so that's what we're trying to instill in our staff mm. um you know we it was you know thank you for giving us that salad all the year i mean it's amazing and you know but it also you know means that we have to keep raising our bar because you yeah. know you create quite a high expectation from people a lot of people you know, come in looking to see what Tim's got, you know, what Tim's talking about. So no, I hope they don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll probably get all the bad reviews. <laughs> 
but you've also got it's a lovely it's a lovely setting obviously on the water but you've got some amazing art there haven't you especially I, I really like the statues they're sort of these enormous statues that are very imposing was that all your vision as well yeah I mean I think when I when I turned 40 I suddenly just I don't know I never liked art before but suddenly when I turned 40 I really liked art so mm. um some of the people that I've got sort of a quite a weird taste in art but yeah I've got <laughs> Some of it's close to the mark, which in the UK yeah. doesn't go down well. Yeah. But um, no, we've got amazing sculptures and amazing yeah. art gallery. Yeah. And I really like to support artists. And I think it really yeah. connects well with the food, the wine. Yeah. It all seems to go hand in hand together. Yeah. I mean, you know, as if having one vineyard was enough, not enough, you then bought two more, right, in England. So you've got <laughs> you've got Manning's Heath, which is also a famous golf course. Then you've got Leonard's Lee Lake and Gardens, which has a Michelin-starred restaurant called Interlude. Um, just tell us a bit more about how you came to acquire those two. Was, was it because you were having such a good time at Benguela Cove? No, it wasn't. It was to go back to um, how was I going to sell the wine? Um, my story was, I said, I was like the woman that swallowed the fly to catch the spider, etc. Mm. And I had to swallow so many flies. And one of those flies was Manning's Heath and Leonard's Lee, because mm. how did I go about marketing Benguela Cove so that Kevin and Paul's theories of my wine ending up mm. in garages didn't mm. happen? Mm. Um, and it was for that reason that, I, you know, we thought, let's go back to England. That's our home market. Yeah, and let's create the kind of cellar doors that you see in South Africa, but in the UK. So that mm. whole wine experience. Mm. Um, on top of that, obviously the fact the, the the stars were aligned because obviously all of the wines of the Sussex region mm. were just you know it was Sussex was just come, becoming one of those well known areas. Yeah, and you know to get the opportunity to plant not one but two vineyards there, mm. and ultimately we're busy with our planning for our cellar. Mm. Mm. Um, I think having that sparkling wine will give us a, you know, just another level, and Johan will be completely involved in that as well. And, and neither's released a wine yet. Is that is that correct? No, it hasn't released yet. So it's going to release in, I think it's twenty twenty four. Yeah, twenty twenty four. And both are going to make bubblies, are they sparkling wines? Yeah, it'll be one winery. It'll be one winery. Um, so it'll be one label. Um, so we won't have a Mannings and a Lenisley. Ah, okay. Um, it'll be one. Yeah. So, yeah. And what's it going to be called? Do, do we know? Can you tell us? Give us a little <laughs> bit of a <laughs> it's, an it's exclusive. Gonna, it's going to operate under the House of Lenisley. Yeah. Um, so and and the labels will ping off from that, and it'll very much work with this. Um, it'll be very much an English label, but there obviously is a Southern African undertone and influence there. Because this is an amazing, have, another project where you took on this amazing old, was it Georgian house? And kind of completely rebuilt that at Leonard's Lee, didn't you? Yeah, well, Len, well Leonard's Lee's a 200-acre um, grade one listed historic garden. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, with the with the mansion house there as well. So, yeah, it's it's something special. We, we've planted, obviously, England's first printage there. So it's got the link back. So it's how we... How how you I suppose the twist that Johan potentially will add to that sparkling will be I think something to watch. I, I mean you're not frightened of a challenge, are you? Taking on these big <laughs> projects. <laughs> no, um, I've been told to drive around with my eyes closed and not touch anything. Like <laughs> and, and as you say, you planted pinotage. A pinotage for you know everyone will know is is a South African creation, really. You know, a, a, a crossing of of. Uh, 
of, of Sanso and, and, and Pinot Noir. What made you want to plant Pinot Noir? You said it was just the link. Was it for have a bit of fun or what? Um, no, it was more than that because I think, you know, it does exceptionally well in a cool climate. Yeah. And um, Johan, again, felt that this would be something that would be quite special um, to potentially do and use, you know, to link our stories together. Yeah, nice idea. I want to talk a bit more to about about business. I mean, I, I read something which I really like, which is it's better to make a wrong decision than no decision at all. I mean, have you have you made wrong decisions and suddenly thought, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that? And I just wonder how hard it is as a kind of top business person to to admit you've made a mistake. Um, yeah, look, I've made lots of wrong decisions. I mean, like that the the big point I suppose of business is sometimes people don't want to make any decision because you know. You just and and everything sort of tends to go along lurching in you know the wrong direction. I think it's better to say do something, try it, and if it's wrong, reverse it quickly. And I've done that lots of times. So, yeah. I mean, there was once where you were going to in, invest in the Middle East, weren't you, or something, or all the Gulf? <laughs> what was it? What was it? I've read somewhere. No, I, I don't think that was me. That <laughs> was somebody else, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was. I did look at thinking about you know. Um, should I have a winery in Napa or should I do this? No, don't thing? do it. So, so those things, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not going there. Yeah. Uh, d- tell us a little bit. I mean, you were, you know, you've won lots of awards, business awards, but you also made an OBE in 2006. I just wonder, is, is official recognition um, important to you or does your kind of success, you know, you're happy with your success and just to be happy on your own, really, and with your family and enjoying it that way? Look, it's nice to have recognition, but no, I'm very self-driven, so I don't potentially need that. I'm quite happy to motivate myself. So, but yeah, of course, it's nice to you know to get the OBE and that stuff was great. Yeah, and, and you know, what about being in the Sunday Times Rich List? I mean, do you ever look at that and think, <laughs> shit, that's me? I can't believe I'm on the Sunday Times Rich List. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, you, I'm, I, I don't know where they get their figures from. So, but yeah. Um, it's all it's all a bit surreal because remember where I started, I was just trying to make sure my kids didn't end up on the street. So yeah. and I think I'm still that kind of person. I have a you know, a fear of failure. Yeah. I constantly have to look at my businesses and try and innovate to make sure that we're at the top of the game because yeah. you know, you never know what's gonna happen. And what does cash give you in a sense? I mean, does it give does it give you freedom to do other things? I mean, does it give you contentment or are you just not really bothered? Is it just a, a kind of side issue? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really bothered about money. I'm not a, you know, flashy person. I haven't got a Ferrari parked outside my house. I haven't got anything like that. So I think it, I think for me, it just gives me security. So yeah. that would be that would be the main thing, and security yeah. to make sure that my businesses are running well and that my staff are okay as well. So you yeah. know, employ a lot of people. So no private jet then. <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, on the BA flight back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've been described as one of the most influential entrepreneurs of our time. I mean, does, does that make you smile? I, mean, I, I also wonder, you know, what, what makes a great entrepreneur, do you think? Is it that ability to take decisions, to take risks? Yeah, I think I think it's the risk taking. I mean, I don't. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm I'm the greatest, most influential of all time. I think it's because there's very few of us women, maybe. So you know, it's it's even in this day and age, it's still a female thing. I think that there's not enough women Mm. who are out there, you know, recruiting, not recruiting, creating different businesses and doing different things. And it's slowly, slowly changing. But I think. That's why, you know, I think if I was, you know, if you look at how can you put me amongst the guy, likes of Philip Green, Jeff Bezos yeah. and all those, you know, yeah. those are really 
you know, great people. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I still think it's an enormous compliment, isn't it, to say that? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I think on that report, I was there with Walt Disney, which worries me as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I mean, how much of what has happened to you has been luck, do you think? All of it. Yeah, is it? <laughs> I'm just a lucky person. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've not. Yeah, you've had some not. tough times in your life. Yeah. Wow, man. I mean, no, exactly, exactly. I mean, look, some of it's luck, but most of it's down to hard work. I mean, yeah. I am a hard worker. Yeah. So you know, and I still am. I like your your idea that the best way to start a business is with no money. I just wonder, <laughs> does that apply to wine as well? Because you know, I'm sure that staying in the wine trade, that the best way to make a small fortune in wine is to start with a larger one. I mean, could you start a wine business with no money? No way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, no. I mean, the, the wine's probably the exception to the rule because, yeah. yeah you need cash. You, know. you need, you need yeah. capital to do it, yeah? Exactly. It's yeah. a money-eating business. So, yeah. And what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur now who is, you know, now in the same position that you were, maybe not quite as difficult a position as you were when you started? Trust your, trust your instinct? What would you say? Yeah, trust your instincts and try and focus on one particular business. I think, mm. you know, for me, the one thing that always makes me laugh, and I still hear people do it, is they say, I'm going to open my own business in a couple of months. Mm. I'm going on holiday first. <laughs> I'd always think, why are you going on holiday? Keep your money because yeah. you know you actually you actually just need to rely totally on yourself and reinvest and reinvest every mm. sort of penny mm. you earn in it. Mm. Um, so I think it's know you, know your product, do something mm. that you're good at, and mm. just keep and just work hard at it. I think. And don't buy posh furniture or a Ferrari. Oh, yeah, no, definitely not. Yeah. Um, people yeah. have to trust themselves, and you know you're not going to make you're not going to make money overnight. Yeah, I mean, I've read somewhere that you said you're never going to retire. I can't imagine you retiring. You seem to be having too much fun for a start. I mean, how, how, how do you get away from the? You've now got four businesses, effectively. How do you, how do you? Yeah, how do you relax and get away from it? Well, luckily, luckily with my UK businesses, I've got people running those, so I'm pretty much focused on Benguela and my South African operations. But you know, I think for me, I like I like to. I've got quite a few big black dogs that I like to go out and walk in the vineyards. I like to, I like hiking. I like those kind of things. So trying to get away from the sort of madness of everything and the phones ringing. So yeah. for me, that's quite important. So a bit of tranquility to go with the yeah. sort of hustle and bustle of things. And you don't have to answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning anymore, I hope. <laughs> no, <laughs> I can always go to work and do that, but no. <laughs> and, and, and are you happy now with what you've got or can you see yourself doing something else as well, adding something else to the portfolio? Well, look, I, we have to keep innovating. Like I said, I've got a fear of failure. So certainly, you know, within within Benguela, we, we're, I'm, I'm the developer here, so busy developing homes left, right and centre. I've got further areas of our commercial area that I want to continue to build and create. At Lenardsey, we've got the same kind of thing, visitor centres, wineries to create, hotels. I mean, it's actually endless. So, you know, this whole foray from recruitment to hospitality has yeah. been a big one and hospitality requires you to be on the ball yeah more than anything else i think it's real-time business so it's crazy yeah brilliant well that's great to hear listen congratulations on the award as the cellador of the year um Thank i'm enjoying you. the wines the wines are getting better and better with every every vintage i think as the vineyards age yeah and, and it, you know it's fascinating thank you so much for sharing your story i mean what an inspirational story anybody listening <laughs> thinking god you know sometimes i'm feeling a bit down i mean they hear what you've been through and what you've come 
out the other end is just brilliant. Anyway, look, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Really appreciate it. And I hope Cheers. to see you soon. Okay. Yeah, I'll see you in South Africa. Will do. Bye. Yes. Bye. Well, what an amazing person Penny is. And you can see why she's so good at recruitment. Can't wait to try that English peanutage. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the retail legend Steve Daniel, a man who changed the face of wine in the UK. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.